If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 13. If you're new with us, we've been walking through Paul's grand letter to the church in Rome for a while now. Last week, we began looking at chapter 13. Uh, The first seven verses is what we started looking at last week. We'll continue in that this week. Um, where Paul deals with our response, the Christian's response to government, to the civil authorities over them. And so uh, let's read verses 1 through 7 and then we'll dive into this text. This is the word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the joy of gathering to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to sing these truths about who you are and what you've done for sinners like us. We thank you for the joy of coming to Uh, the Lord's Supper table and uh, proclaiming our faith in Jesus Christ alone for rescue from sin's penalty, sin's power, and ultimately someday sin's very presence. And we ask, Father, that you would keep us in a spirit of worship as we come now to your holy, most precious word, that which we hold in our hands and know to be your very breath. God, may you use it to give us not just understanding about how we as Christ followers living in exile in this world are to live in response to this government, but Lord, that you would change our hearts about this, that we would do this with the right motives to see you glorified through us as we seek to be obedient to what you've called us to here. Pray that you'd be with me, Lord. Pray that you'd speak through me. I'm simply a vessel, Lord. May your word ring true in the hearts and lives of your children, and may your spirit bring about the change that is necessary to conform us to the image of Christ. We ask this in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we mentioned last time, the overarching principle, kind of the foundational argument that Paul is putting forth here in these first seven verses of Romans 13 is found there in the first half of verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let every person put themselves under 
the government that is over them. And then he gives three reasons in this passage. First of all, because all authority comes from and is instituted by God. Second of all, because the government has the right to exercise judgment and punishment. And then thirdly, because of the sake of your conscience. Now, we covered the first of those reasons last week. And I hope by God's grace to cover at least the second reason this morning. Uh, But we're probably not going to finish uh, these seven verses this morning, so we'll, we'll spend one, one more week here. But um, in, in that first reason, I, I want to lay out a little bit more detail. We dealt with that last week. This Government is God's idea, not man's. Government is, is instituted by God. It's his invention. It is not man's invention. This is what God's word says. And in God's wisdom, he purposed that mankind would be governed by civil authorities, And so according to his sovereign plan, he placed his authority into the hands of mankind. He placed his authority, understand this, into the hands of broken, sinful man. Such that he would, through that framework, within and through that framework, he would providentially and sovereignly bring about his will, bring about his plan, even even through the reign of evil and unjust rulers. Rulers like Pharaoh. We talked last week about how it was, it was God who put Pharaoh in place, knowing that Pharaoh would rule ruthlessly, ruthlessly and unjustly over the Hebrew slaves. But we're told in, in Scripture that God did this, God raised up Pharaoh for the purpose of making his name great, making God's name great and bringing glory to himself through Pharaoh's evil reign. God had a purpose even in the evil rule of Pharaoh. God works out his sovereign plan even through rulers like King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 who commanded that everyone must bow down to the golden image. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, Uh, Daniel himself says, it is God, it is the Lord who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, who would require and demand that his subjects worship a golden image. It was God who put him in place. Daniel himself even said that. God works out his plan even through evil and unjust rulers like Darius the Mede later in Daniel who issued the decree that it was unlawful to pray to any god other than himself. Even through evil and unjust dictators like Hitler of Germany, Stalin in Russia, Castro of Cuba, Idi Amin of Uganda, and the like. Even the rule of evil dictators like that fall within the scope and purvey of God's sovereignty and providence. Just because we don't understand or agree with his reasoning for doing so doesn't mean that he doesn't and that he doesn't have a reason through which he will glorify himself and bring good to his children ultimately. Now, we noted last week that although all governments are instituted by God, the command to subject ourselves to the governing authorities is not absolute. It's not without exception. There are two exceptions to this rule. We noted last time, first of all, 
When government requires us to violate Scripture, we're to obey God rather than man. Secondly, when government becomes so evil and so unjust, it must be disobeyed. It must be resisted in order to be changed itself from its immorality and unjustness. Just because God instituted all kinds of governments and all of these rulers and raised them up to their place of rule doesn't mean our obedience to them is absolute. Our subjection to the governing authorities is mitigated by our subjection to Jesus Christ. We, we as Christ followers, we don't have two masters. We have one master, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and so as we obey the governing authorities that he placed over us or that he placed us under, we obey them only so insofar as those governing authorities are not in conflict with his word to us. This book that he has given to us is to take precedence over the laws of man when they come in conflict. We looked at several biblical examples of this last week. Uh, in Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives refused to obey the command of Pharaoh to kill all of the male-born Hebrew uh, children. They, it says they feared God. They, out of fear for God, or in other words, out of reverence for God, knowing that that is murder, they refused to obey Pharaoh. They disobeyed his rule. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not obey King Nebuchadnezzar's command to bow down at the golden image. In, in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel disobeys Darius the Medes, uh, who, who outlawed uh, praying to anyone other than himself. And we also looked at Acts chapter 4 and 5, where Peter and John and the apostles refused to obey the Jewish governing authorities who strictly forbade them to preach and teach in the name of Jesus Christ. They said, we must obey God rather than man. And in all of those cases except one, the one who disobeyed the governing authorities received punishment from the governing authorities. The only exception are the Hebrew midwives because Pharaoh didn't find out. If Pharaoh had found out, certainly they would have been punished as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know, were thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel was thrown in the, in the, in the lion's den. Peter and John were beaten and imprisoned. So the principle for us is that when civil government is requiring us to do something that would require us to disobey God's word, we must do, as Peter said, we must obey God rather than man, even if it means fines, even if it means imprisonment, church, even if it means torture, even if it means death, as it does for some people, some brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world. But that second exception to the rule of being subject to the governing authorities that we covered last week was when government itself is so evil and so immoral and so unjust that it requires God's people to mobilize and take direct action to resist that government, disobey that government, and perhaps in extreme cases, overthrow that government. But how evil, this is, this is where the sticking point was, how evil is so evil that government must be disobeyed? How immoral must government and its laws be in order for God's people to take direct action to disobey government in order to change that immorality. How unjust is unjust to require disobedience? 
We just briefly touched on this last week, so I want to spend a bit of time this morning given a, a, give, to give a more robust answer to this question. I want to start by giving you four considerations for civil disobedience. This is from John Piper. I found this to be a very helpful uh, thing, helpful uh, considerations for, for determining the when and how of civil disobedience. When is it necessary? When does it become justified? And when it does, how are we to go about it? And this is not going to give you the details of how you do civil disobedience and exactly when, but there are things to consider when you think about that. The first consideration is the grievousness of the action sanctioned by the law. How wrong is it? How atrocious is it? How evil, how immoral is that? Is this a true evil? Is, is this a traffic pattern or a traffic law that you think is dumb? Or is this law sanctioning murder? Is it an unfair price for a fishing or hunting license? Or is this a true evil that the law is allowing? So that's the first thing, to consider the grievousness, the, the, the atrocity of the what the law is allowing or sanctioning. Second of all, to consider the extent of the unjust law's effect. What is the extent of that law? Is is it only a person here or there that is affected, or is it affecting millions? Does the law have what Piper calls incidental inconsistency, or is it putting an entire group of people into bondage because purely because of their ethnicity or what have you? That's the second thing to consider, the extent of the unjust law's effect. And the third thing to consider is the potential for a particular act of civil disobedience to effectively and clearly communicate what is true and what is just and what is right. So this is the question here of strategy. And there's going to be a lot of room here for um, disagreement, a lot of room here for differing understandings about whether or not a particular act of civil disobedience actually fits that criteria. Whether it truly does effectively and clearly communicate what is true and right. But it can't be something that is like hidden. It's not something that is secret. That's not what is at stake here. It must be out in the open. It must be clear. And there must be a clear connection to the immorality of the law itself in order to bring awareness to it. And then the fourth consideration is what Piper calls the movement of a spirit of courage and conviction in God's people, which which necessitates that this is the time for action. Here's what Piper writes about this. Historically, there appears to be what he calls a flashpoint of moral indignation. An evil may exist for years or perhaps even generations, and then something strange happens. One person, and then tens of thousands of people, can no longer just get up and go to work and say, I wish it weren't this way. A flashpoint is reached, and what had hung in the air for years as a tolerable evil explodes with an overwhelming sense that this state of affairs simply can no longer be. Now, let me try to flesh out for you a couple of examples from American history 
to see how we might wrestle with this, to see how people have wrestled with this in the past. The first example I want to present to you is that of the civil rights movement in America. In his letters from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. writes about the injustice of segregation laws and how they are immoral and they are unjust, and because of that, that they must be disobeyed. He says this, Segregation laws are immoral and unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. He goes on to say, I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment, which, by the way, is a hallmark of civil disobedience. It's, 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 not, it's not about trying to escape the punishment. It's willingly accepting that punishment. And so he says, he who breaks a law that the conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. And I think for the most part, that sentiment agrees with Scripture, except for perhaps the statement that man's conscience is the arbiter of what laws are just or unjust. Our consciences are seared by our depravity. Our, our consciences are not trustworthy arbiters of justice. Only God's Word is the right arbiter of justice. It is only God's word that we can rely on for what is moral or immoral, right or wrong, just or in unjust. And so segregation laws are unjust, not because our conscience tells us so, but because they, as King Martin Luther King noted, they distort the soul and damage the personhood of people created in the image of God. So back to those four considerations of civil disobedience. When we look back at the struggle in our country for civil rights in America, we can say without equivocations that those grievances were atrocious. We can say, furthermore, that the extent of the injustice was not isolated, but it was perpetrated on an entire ethnic minority. Thirdly, we can say that the civil disobedience of men like Martin Luther King and women like Rosa Parks, that, that those acts of civil disobedience did clearly and effectively point to what is true and right and just. And fourthly, those whose consciences were attuned to this injustice reached a point, a, a flashpoint of moral indignation. To where continuing to tolerate these injustices became an injustice to itself. And so civil disobedience at that point was required, and I would say biblically justified in those cases. Another example from American history would be our American war for independence. The Revolutionary War itself, where we rebelled against our governing authorities, the British crown. Spent some time this week reading through and studying our Declaration of Independence, something I haven't done for a long time, since grade school probably. But one of the things I was struck by was the lengths to which the drafters of that document went to lay out a case for the immorality and the unjustness of the treatment at the hands of the British Crown. The document lists 27 
distinct cases of injustice and immorality on the hands, at the hands of King George and his government, including things like the following. It says, he has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy. I had to look that word up. It means with great deception. So, so these things have already begun with circumstances of cruelty and great deception, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous of ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. At the end of the 27, that's just two of them, at the end of those 27, that list of 27 distinct grievances at the injustice of the British crown, the Declaration of Independence attempts to show the efforts to which the colonists had already gone to try to uh, remedy this problem amicably with Great Britain. It writes, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. But our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. The declaration goes on to conclude, based on the evidence that it lays out there, to declare these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and to the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that the writers of the Declaration of Independence relied accurately on Scripture for their inspiration. After all, one of the primary writers of this was Thomas Jefferson, whose theistic deism bears very little resemblance, if any, to what we know to be biblical Christianity. But they do go to great lengths to, going back to those four considerations of civil disobedience, they go to great lengths to demonstrate that these grievances were not small. In fact, it even says in there that this is not to be for light and momentary offenses, but when a series of events, and he goes on to describe all of these offenses over the years that have occurred. So these grievances were significant. The extent of the injustices were, were, were vast, and their separation from Great Britain would be a clear statement, a clear and effective statement of what is right and true and just, that a, the, the free people of the colonies, furthermore, they'd reached the flashpoint. They had tolerated those offenses, as they said, for, for so long, and they had, they had waited for redress for so long, and now they could no longer tolerate them. I think that makes for a well-reasoned example of when the governing authorities have become so evil and so unjust that they must be disobeyed. Now, whether it meets the biblical criteria for resisting the governing authorities or or not is another thing entirely. We need to understand that very, very thoughtful Christians fell down on different sides of this issue. And I think the answer to that question is not so easily dismissed by thinking Christians today as well. A more current example to consider might be abortion. Our country's laws that allow the murder of innocent children are categorically immoral, unjust, 
and without equivocation, evil. But as evil and immoral as un, and as unjust as they are, they do not require us to do anything that violates Scripture. So that it doesn't meet the first criteria of an exception. Nobody is holding a gun to our head requiring us to abort our pregnancies. But it is the epitome of injustice to allow the murder of an innocent baby, which is what we believe abortion to be. So how are we as Christ followers to respond to this given Paul's injunction to be subject to the ruling authorities? I'm glad you asked. Should we as private citizens seek to overturn Roe v. Wade and pursue every political avenue we possibly can in order to see that accomplished? Absolutely we should. Should we march? Should we march demonstrating our disapproval of this law and demonstrating our solidarity to see it reversed? Absolutely we should, and many of us have. But even in our marching, we should do so lawfully and respectfully, seeking to gain the right permissions and permits, obeying the ordinances that govern public assembly. Should we demonstrate outside of abortion clinics? Absolutely. But even in our demonstrating, we ought to do so lawfully and respectfully. Obeying and respecting the required and mandated buffer zones. And not yelling shameful obscenities at the women who enter those clinics. But should we go so far as to physically damage those clinics? Or assault those who work in them and perform abortions? Absolutely not. It's wrong, biblically wrong, to damage someone else's party, uh, property or to assault them physically. And, and, and so while, while those kinds of actions might seem justified given the first two considerations, it's certainly th- those, those grievances are as atrocious as any atrocity could be. And the extent of them is beyond compare. Nearly a million children in the U.S. alone every year are murdered. Certainly the extent of the evil that the law allows is beyond compare. But it doesn't meet the qualification of that third consideration. How can damaging property or assaulting abortion clinic workers ever clearly communicate the sanctity and dignity of human life? That would be like us punching our neighbor in order to teach our neighbor that it's wrong to punch someone. It's hypocrisy. What about refusing to pay taxes? Should we refuse to pay taxes because some of our money is used to fund organizations like Planned Parenthood that perform murder on children? No, I don't think that's justified. That would be violating clear commands from Scripture. Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And even in this very passage, in verses 6 and 7, he says, pay taxes, pay your taxes. We'll get to that next week. But we should urge our elected officials in every way possible to stop funding an organization that that assists in the murder of innocent babies. Now, let's step back for a second and hear what what I've just talked about. None of what I've just allowed for in the pro-life movement would be considered civil disobedience. I've argued that we need to march, that we need to demonstrate, but we need to do so lawfully. 
Civil disobedience would be in some way breaking a law and being willing to accept the consequences of having broken the law in order to change the morality and to change the injustice of the system itself. So perhaps civil disobedience in this case would be and would include violating those buffer zones and in some way restricting access to those abortion clinics in some way. The question is, at what point does, do things like that become biblically justified? If we look at these, these four considerations of civil disobedience, the grievance of abortion, the, 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 the abortion law's cause, is the atrocity of murder. Certainly it checks that box. The, the, the box of the extent of the atrocity. Nearly a million children a year? Absolutely it checks that box. So maybe it's, it's that flashpoint that hasn't been, been reached yet. That, that flashpoint of moral indignation where, where God's people are so moved by a spirit of courage and conviction that they can no longer tolerate such injustice. And perhaps that flashpoint simply hasn't arrived yet. But I suppose it would be obvious for us then to ask, what is it going to take? At what point will God's people, myself included, no longer be able to tolerate a government that allows the murder of innocent babies? And when, what will that civil disobedience look like? It's not a simple question to answer, is it? Thoughtful Christians have already begun to act in ways of civil disobedience and accepting the due recourse of the government's punishment for having done so. And the question that we have to ask the Lord is, is it time for us? That's something you can discuss in your base group. So as God's people, we, the rule is we are to be subject to the governing authorities. But that, subject, that subjection is not absolute. It's not absolute. It is limited to the extent to which the governing authorities do not require us to do something that would require a violation of God's word. It's furthermore limited to the extent that the actions of the governing authorities do not de- demonstrate that the government itself is so immoral, so evil, so unjust that action must be taken in order to change and resist it. So we should obey government. We should submit to the governing authorities those exceptions notwithstanding, the first reason is because God is the one who instituted government. There is no authority other than that which God puts in place. And when we resist government, we resist God and we deserve judgment because of that. That's the first reason. The second reason why we should submit to governing authorities is because God ha- government has the right, and we should argue the God-given right, to exercise judgment and to met out punishment Look at verses 3 and 4 of our passage from Romans 13. Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of that you will receive his approval? For he is God's servant for your good. But But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now embedded in those two verses are the Apostle Paul's reason for government. And it's twofold. First of all, to restrain evil. Second of all, to promote good. That's what we see 
in this passage. Now, he says in verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, I think we have to say here that what Paul has in view here, in a, in a, in a general way, is not evil government, not, not immoral, unjust tyrants. He's thinking in a general way about good and just governments. When he says that, when he says rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad, he knows that just a few years earlier, the governing authorities in Palestine, led by Pontius Pilate, were in fact a terror to Jesus and his disciples, and certainly not because of any bad conduct on their part. He likewise knows that under the current Caesar of Rome, these Christians who are reading his letter are in fact being terrorized by their own government. In fact, Paul himself in just a few years will be put to death by Emperor Nero. Not because of bad conduct, but simply because they are followers of Christ. Now Paul knows this. So why, why does he say rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad? It's because he's addressing this topic in a general way. That most governments are, for the most part, not dangerous to those who follow the law. But they are dangerous to those who don't follow the law. So the good conduct here refers to obeying the laws of that government, and the bad conduct refers to disobeying the laws of of government. So he says, if you want to live in peace, if you want to live in relative safety, if you want to live and have no fear of government, then do what is good. That is, obey the government's laws. But he goes on to say, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So the purpose of government, according to the Apostle Paul, is twofold. First of all, is to restrain evil. It's to restrain evil. He says there in verse 4, At the end of verse 4, for he is the servant of God, speaking of the governing authorities, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Back in chapter 12, in verse 19, Paul commanded us, do not avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. In other words, um, if somebody wrongs you, You're not to try to get back at them and retaliate, but we are to let God handle it in his perfect timing. And what Paul is telling us, part of what Paul is telling us in Romans 13 verse 4 is that according to him, one of the ways that God handles it is that he uses his avenger, here referring to government, as God's avenger to carry out his wrath on the wrongdoer. So this is why we aren't vigilantes out there carrying out our own justice. We let God handle it. And in some cases, that governing authority that God has instituted over us, they carry out justice, however imperfectly. They are to carry out justice. And that's the system that God has put in place. That's the system that God endorses as his avenger. So if somebody assaults me, I'm not to retaliate in kind. I'm not to try to get back at them. I'm not to set set an ambush for them to to get them back. But if God so chooses, he will utilize government to bring about justice 
by bringing criminal charges against that person and bringing justice to them. And in that case, government will be the servant of God, an avenger who carries out his wrath on the wrongdoer. And so in response to that, church, we can be thankful. We we can be thankful that generally speaking, and for the most part, civil government is a means of common grace used by God to restrain evil. Common grace meaning a, a show, a demonstration of God's favor on both the unbeliever and the believer alike. And we can be thankful that God does this and uses government to restrain evil in this sense. It is gracious of God to institute a means by which evil does not have free reign, but is restrained, not not eliminated, and not restrained perfectly, but it is held in check. It is not allowed to, to reign unrestrained. One of the things that Paul mentions here is that government does not bear the sword in vain, meaning there that God has given the right and the authority for the government to met out punishment. The sword here is symbolic of government's right to execute punishment on lawbreakers. And and government's God-given right to do so has the effect of restraining evil. Not perfectly, Only God will restrain evil perfectly one day. But in this age, in this time, he uses government as his avenger to do just that, to restrain evil. The second purpose of government, according to Paul, is to promote good. Look again at verse 3 in the first part of verse 4. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. The government is God's servant for your good. In other words, God uses government on the one hand to restrain evil, and on the other hand, to promote good, to promote a generally peaceful, a a, a generally evil-free life that is relatively free and safe from the dangers of evil and sinful man. Paul articulated this purpose of government to young Timothy when he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. High positions meaning those who are, in, who are governing authorities. So pray for them. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. Paul was saying, pray for your governing authorities. Pray for those that God has put in authority over you, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, because that's part of why God has instituted government, that in order to secure such a life so that we might live that way. And how does government do that? How does government accomplish this? By establishing and enforcing laws that do just that, that restrain evil and promote good. Those who say that you can't legislate morality have it wrong. There is a moral premise underneath almost all of our laws. Is it unlawful to break the speed limit? Absolutely. Why is that? 
because it's morally wrong to operate for us to operate our vehicles in a way that is that puts the safety of other people at risk. That's morally wrong. There's a morality underneath that civil law. This past year, Georgia passed the hands-free law. It makes it illegal to even hold your phone while driving. Is there a moral premise behind that? Absolutely. Again, it is protecting the safety of others. And, and so we legislate morality all of the time. That's one of the purposes of government in order to restrain evil and to promote good. And when we obey these laws, Paul says at the end of verse 3, do what is good and you will receive his approval. In other words, if you're obeying, obeying the governing authorities in these ways, according to these laws, you will receive the approval of the government by recognizing you as a law-abiding citizen and withholding the sword from you so that you might live a peaceful life, a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The Apostle Peter also summed up this twofold purpose of government when he said in his first epistle, chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's our goal there, for the Lord's sake. That's our motivation in being subject to the governing authorities, that God might be glorified through us being subject to the governing authorities. So be subject to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So to punish those who do evil, that's restraining evil. To praise those who do good, government does this, not this is not the idea of government rewarding us for following the law or throwing a party for all law-abiding citizens. But the government praises those who do good by withholding the sword from us that we might live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and dignity and reserves that sword for those who do wrong. But Paul's mention there in verse 4 of the sword reminds us of another time when Paul mentions the sword. So if you've got your Bible, flip back to Romans chapter 8, just a few chapters earlier. Towards the end of chapter 8, beginning in verse 35, all of chapter 8, Paul is talking about the certainty of our assurance of salvation and what that means for us in Christ, and that absolutely nothing can change that. Uh, that, that if we are in Christ by faith that we are in a union with him that cannot change. Nothing's going to change that. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the sword that he's referring to there? Well, he tells us in the next verse as he quotes from Psalm 44. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So it is the sword that is used to kill. Something was happening there in pre-exilic Israel that had caused the murder of innocent people. But he says that sword can't separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels 
nor rulers. These are the governing authorities that wield that sword, sometimes according to their sinful, immoral, unjust nature. They wield it in unjust and immoral ways. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If he has rescued us by grace through faith, there's nothing that can change that, including rulers who wield the sword. Now if Paul knows, here's the question, if Paul knows that civil governments run by broken, sinful man may sometimes use the sword in evil ways to kill even those who follow Christ, then why do you think he speaks with such unqualified absoluteness in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7? Now, we understand that there are exceptions. We've read, we, we, we don't read one passage of Scripture in a vacuum. We, we, we understand that there are exceptions, and Peter gives us exceptions, and God's Word includes the exceptions that we've noted very clearly last week and this week. But, 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 but Paul doesn't include them. Paul doesn't qualify his statement. Why, why does he speak with such unqualified absoluteness in these seven verses? I think there's two reasons. I think, first of all, he knows that Caesar is listening. He knows that the governing authorities of the Roman Empire and that perhaps even Caesar himself will one day This letter will make its way to him. And Paul wants him to know that Christians are not out to overthrow him. That's not our purpose. Our goal is not to unseat Caesar. Our goal is not to overthrow the existing government. As Christians, we give ultimate allegiance to Christ, not Caesar. But we are not revolutionaries. And I think he also wants Caesar to know by way of consequence, that whatever authority he has is not his own, that it's been given to him. Just as Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, the only authority you have is the authority that has been granted to you by the Father. And he wants Caesar to know what you have is borrowed authority. There is someone who is an authority over you, and we give allegiance to him over you. But secondly, this the fact that Paul speaks with such unqualified absoluteness here, shows us that Paul here is more concerned with the believer's humility and self-denial and trust in Christ no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the consequences are, that he's more concerned with that than he is with our civil liberties. Listen to John Piper's point here. The main issue... For Paul and for Christ and and, and biblically for us, the main issue is not being treated justly in this world by civil authorities. The main issue is trusting Christ, being humble, and denying ourselves for the glory of Christ and for the good of others. I think that beautifully represents Paul's heart here in Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. Church, let us not get so caught up in the exceptions to these seven verses and what these seven verses are not saying that we miss the heart of what they are saying. 
as we surrender daily to Christ and resist being conformed to the pattern of this world and instead seek to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, transformed to look more like Christ, as we are in that process, Paul wants his readers and us to be characterized by humility and self-denial and a trust in Christ regardless of what consequences may come rather than being characterized as a people who are so overtly concerned and perhaps even driven to anxiousness by and fear by a disintegration of our civil liberties. May we we reflect the heart of Jesus well here in being subject to the governing authorities. The exceptions notwithstanding church, may we be characterized as those who are subject to the governing authorities. As citizens of another land, as citizens of heaven, we, we who are believers in Christ, we who have been saved by grace through faith, we are called to be salt and light in this world to which we have been sent, in this world in which we are currently exiles. We're not called to institute a Christian nation. We are called to proclaim the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. The good news that sinners like us, that God has purchased a way for us to be reconciled to him, forgiven of the debts that we owe to him, the debts can be canceled, that, that, that our lack of righteousness can be overrun by the righteousness of Christ credited to our account by faith in Jesus Christ, crucified, died, and risen again. That by faith in him, we might get his righteousness and he might take our sins upon his own shoulders and reconcile us to the God who made us for his own glory. That is the gospel, and that is what we have been put here to proclaim to a lost and dying world, not not to institute a Christian nation or to our dying breath complain about our lack of civil, civil liberties. Church, let us resist that urge and instead press into being subject. And in so doing, may we look different May we look different than the world around us. May we be conformed to the image of Jesus who likewise endured such scorn and offense for the joy set before him. May we do the same. May our subjections to the governing authorities be used by our God toward that end. Let's pray.